Well, let me ask you to open up this morning to the book of Exodus and chapter 6. The book of Exodus and chapter 6. And as you turn there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever sat down with someone in your family that is younger than you and pulled out a family album or a family tree and begun to tell that younger person about your family? Have you ever sat down with your children or grandchildren or uh, with nephews or nieces and began to tell them about great uncle Eddie or Aunt Ruth and began sharing some of the stories about your relatives that have been passed down? These may be relatives that the young person has never met before. Or maybe they've met them, but they don't yet know the stories that everyone else in the family seems to know. Uh, Every family has its cast of characters. And every family has its tales to tell. Well, last week, two weeks ago, uh, we left the first half of Exodus 6 with Moses discouraged before God. Uh, Moses had gone before Pharaoh. He had delivered God's message that Pharaoh was to let God's people go, and things only got worse. The people of God are still in bondage. Moses did what he was supposed to do. He went before Pharaoh. He delivered the message, and Israel is still in slavery. Moses was supposed to speak for God to Pharaoh. And through Moses, God promised he would rescue his people. Moses went, and the people haven't been rescued. Just the opposite. Pharaoh has decided to teach these Hebrews a lesson. He has made their workload even more severe. And now the people of Israel themselves are refusing to listen to Moses. God has given Moses some reasons to take heart. But when we left Moses last, he was still struggling to believe what God was promising. We're left with questions. Will Moses continue to obey? Or in discouragement, will Moses turn away from God and give up on this whole endeavor? If Moses does choose to stay faithful, will the people of Israel even follow him? Will Pharaoh let God's people go? And if so, how in the world is God going to accomplish that when right now everything looks so bleak? And so right here in the middle of Exodus 6, we are in a dramatic moment of despair and discouragement. And in this moment, in the story, Moses, who writes this account, decides to give us a genealogy. Isn't that strange? We're right in in the middle of him telling the story. We're at a a low point, the, the crisis moment. And he stops and he gives us a genealogy. Now, maybe a passage like this doesn't excite you. I've been talking to the pastors who participated in the parables conference this year, and I asked them, what about this for next year's theme? Genealogies. Every preacher takes their own favorite genealogy. 
Yeah, that's how they responded too. They, they didn't think it was very exciting, right? And that's how we can be when we get to genealogies in the Bible. When we get to these long lists of names, we, we think, hmm. And a lot of times, probably, we just skip over them. But let me remind you that genealogies must be important because God placed many of them in the pages of the Bible. And I think you will see as we go along that there is much here for us to learn Much here for us to grow from. And so I want to begin reading this morning, beginning in verse 14. Beginning in verse 14. And remember, this is the very word of God. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon. Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elsaphon, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithmaar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. So, Why in the world does Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, stop right in the middle of the story to give us this genealogy? Well, I think verses 26 and 27 give us a clear answer, right? These are the Aaron and the Moses to whom the Lord said. You see, in case you don't know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, let me give you a little heads up. Things are about to get a little crazy in Egypt. Water is about to be turned to blood. Frogs and flies are soon to invade. There is going to be pestilence. There is going to be darkness. There is going to be all sorts of amazing events that sound like something more out of a Marvel movie than from actual human history. And moreover... We can't expect the people of Egypt 
to write these things down as historical events in commemorative stone. Uh, Egypt liked to record their victories, but they didn't record their defeats. And so we're given this genealogy to help us see that what we're about to read is not a fairy tale. It's not a Marvel movie. It's history. Um, It helped future Israelites to see that Moses and Aaron were not some kind of fictional superheroes. This genealogy connects Moses and Aaron to real people who came before them and real people who came after them. The point of this genealogy is to place Moses and Aaron in real time and real space to show that these were real men in human history and that what we are about to read, as amazing as those chapters will be, it really is actual human history. Did you notice that the genealogy starts out with the first son of Jacob, Reuben? Then it moves to the second son of Jacob, Simeon. Moses and Aaron are not descended from Reuben or from Simeon. They are descended from the third son of Jacob, Levi. And once the genealogy gets to Levi, it doesn't go on telling us about any of the other 12 sons of Jacob. Isn't that interesting? It starts like it's going to give us the 12 sons of Jacob. Reuben first, then Simeon, then Levi, and then it stops. And it just continues with, with Levi. So why does it, if, 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 if the purpose of the genealogy is to tell us about Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron are descended from Levi, why even mention Reuben and Simeon at all? It's as if you're sitting down with a grandchild, and you say, before I tell you about my grandfather, let me first tell you about his two older brothers. That's kind of what's happening here. I think this is the answer. Moses also wrote the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, he gives us a genealogy that includes all 12 of the sons of Jacob. What he seems to be doing here in Exodus 6 is beginning with that very same genealogy that we find in the book of Genesis. He goes back to the beginning of it again and goes all the way to Levi, but then he stops and goes deeper and further into Levi's family than the genealogy we found in Genesis. In other words, Moses is showing exactly where he and Aaron fit in to the family of Israel as outlined in Genesis 46. He is connecting himself, he is connecting his brother Aaron to those of the family of Abraham who came before him. And anyone who wants to claim that this book of Exodus is mere fiction has to come to grips with this genealogy and explain away all of the evidence that these were real men experiencing real works of God. There is a second reason, though, why I think Moses stops right in the middle of the story to give us this genealogy. You see, Aaron has now joined the team. Moses' older brother Aaron is with him in this endeavor to lead God's people out of Egypt. What we are about to see in Exodus 7 is Aaron beginning to take a greater and greater role. It will actually be Aaron who cast down the staff of God before Pharaoh and it will turn into a serpent. 
So what we notice in this genealogy is that it's actually more about Aaron than it is about Moses. It's interesting, the genealogy doesn't even mention any of Moses' children, but it does tell us about Aaron's sons, and even goes so far as to mention a grandson of Aaron. It's really interesting. This this genealogy could have been much shorter. Moses could have just said, Levi begat Kohath, who begat Amram, who begat Aaron and Moses. The end, back to the story. But instead of just mentioning Grandpa Kohath, Moses takes time to mention Kohath's brothers, the other sons of Levi. And then, instead of just mentioning Kohath's children, since that's the family Aaron and Moses come from, Moses takes time to mention the sons of these other great uncles. In other words, it becomes very clear that this isn't even really about Aaron alone. This genealogy is about the priesthood. This genealogy is showing the family of Aaron in wide scope because these are the people who are going to become the religious leaders of Israel. If you're a spiritual leader in Israel, if you are a priest, you must have your credentials. And in Old Testament Israel, what were your credentials to be a priest? It was this, who's your father? And who was your grandfather? Are you a member of the tribe of Levi? And if you are, what part of the tribe of Levi do you come from? Because different clans have different roles to play. And so with the introduction of Aaron and the greater role that Aaron is about to play, Moses stops to show us where this high priest of Israel comes from and who is counted in the family of the spiritual leaders of Israel. You say, Justin, that's all well and good, but it has nothing to do with me. Well, that's not exactly true. If nothing else, at the very least, it reminds you that our God is a God of order. That ought to bring you some comfort, I think. I think it ought to encourage us to imitate Him in that way, being a people of order. But it also has to do with you in this way. Who are you going to accept as a spiritual leader today? In the Old Testament, you could only be a priest, a spiritual leader in Israel, through the credentials of Levitical heritage. But what about now? Do spiritual leaders have to have credentials? Can just anyone step up and say, I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. Are you going to be willing to follow someone who simply takes for themselves the title of pastor without any proper credentials? I ask that because of some things that are happening in our culture right now. There are a number of very well-intentioned young men who can't seem to find a church to pastor because smaller churches are closing their doors while more and more people are moving in towards larger, even mega churches. And so there are fewer churches and there are more eager young men who can't find a flock to lead. And one way that some of these young men are responding is by starting churches of their own. Now don't get me wrong, planting churches is a good thing. But churches ought to plant churches. 
For a man simply to declare himself a pastor and then to create a church around him, I think, is against the teaching of Scripture. For in the New Testament, we find that spiritual leaders must be credentialed as well. What are the credentials of a true pastor? You are to be tested by a congregation according to the principles of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And then, if a church of the Lord Jesus Christ has examined your life and found you to meet those qualifications, they are to lay their hands on you, pray over you, and in that way to ordain you to the ministry. This is the pattern found in the pages of the New Testament. We ought not to follow just anyone as a spiritual leader, as a pastor, who has not been properly examined and appointed for the ministry. What we see more and more of today are young men who get a group of people together, start a church, and then once the church is established, they seek to just run with the title of pastor. But in the scriptures, we see that pastors are to lead in the process of appointing new pastors. Titus was told to appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete. In other words, this process of being examined for ministry and being ordained for ministry is to be undertaken by a congregation which is being led by duly appointed pastors who themselves were duly examined and appointed. Bottom line is this. It's unhealthy and it's dangerous for someone to basically declare themselves a pastor just as it was very dangerous in the Old Testament for someone to declare themselves a priest who didn't have the Levitical credentials. Did you know that you can go online this afternoon and for $50 you can get your pastor's license? You can. For $50 online you can get licensed as a pastor. Men, women, I don't know, probably kids, I don't know if they make you do an 18 or older statement, I have no idea. Any of you could do that. So should we just follow anyone who happens to have a pastor's license? Now, I'm not trying to pick on someone here, but we all know the Reverend Al Sharpton. Reverend Al Sharpton is called Reverend because he was ordained for the ministry at age 10. And he served as a junior pastor at age 10 in the church where he was at. Once he became an adult, he never led a single church. Uh, We never see anything like this in the Bible. He, He was never examined for the ministry as an adult. He was never ordained as an adult. He's never pastored a church, but we call him the Reverend Al Sharpton. And what I'm suggesting is he is as much a reverend as Dr. Seuss is a doctor. Now, that's an example There are many, many more people like him who want to take things for themselves when they haven't been duly tested and duly appointed. So you see, credentials really do matter. I would suggest one lesson we have here is that we are only to take for ourselves spiritual leaders, pastors, who have what God commands them to have. In the Old Testament, show your Levitical heritage. In the New Testament, be tested and examined by a faithful church led by faithful pastors and be duly appointed into the gospel ministry. Now, 
as Israelites would have read this genealogy, some of these names would have really stuck out to them. So as you're sitting with your child or grandchild and you're walking through your family tree and you're looking through old family albums, there are going to be certain faces you see. And as soon as you see that face, there's some thoughts that come to your mind. There's a story to tell right there, right? Well, in the same way as uh, Israelites would have read this genealogy, some of these names would have been, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, right? I remember that person. We know that story. Some of these names are connected with stories found right here in the pages of the Bible. Uh, Other names here belong to people whose lives were lives of godliness, but some belong to people whose stories warn us not to imitate them. And so what I want to do for just the little bit of time I have left in this message, I simply want to highlight for you some of the names in this genealogy that ought to stick out to you as you read them. There are certain thoughts that ought to come into your mind when you read some of these names, and I want to remind you of the lessons that we learn from certain names in this genealogy. So first, note, Great Uncle Reuben. Great Uncle Reuben. Reuben had everything going for him. He was the firstborn of Jacob, and this meant he normally would have had the place of highest authority and honor among his brothers. But Reuben was a restless man. He was unstable, and he refused to be at peace. And in his restlessness, Reuben failed to practice self-control. He went up to his father's bed, and he slept with his father's wife. The son who was supposed to outshine the others in dignity and responsibility and maturity lost all of his privileges because he could not constrain his lusts. Not a single prophet, priest, or king ever came from the line of Reuben. When you read the name Reuben in any genealogy, here is what you should hear. You should hear a warning about the importance of self-control. Reuben reminds us how just one sin can ruin our lives and bring terrible consequences. One lapse in judgment. One moment of lack of self-control can ruin your life. To paraphrase Matthew Henry, there are some sins whose stains do not wipe off easily, especially seventh commandment sins. Reuben's sin left an indelible mark of infamy upon his family, a dishonor that was a wound not to be healed without a scar. Mount Hermon, even when there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are some sins which have consequences that will never leave us in this life. And Reuben is a reminder of that. Second, note great uncles Simeon, sorry, note great uncle Simeon and grandpa Levi. These two brothers, great uncle Simeon and grandpa Levi. Uh, I'm calling Reuben and Simeon great uncles and Levi, grandpa, because that appears to be who they were through the mother's side of Aaron and Moses. There are some questions about whether or not there are any gaps in this genealogy, but based on what we have here, Reuben and Simeon were great uncles to Aaron and Moses, and Levi was their grandpa on their mother's side. Now, he was their great-grandpa on their father's side, which is pretty strange. Their grandfather was also their great-grandfather. 
And that's because their father, Amram, married his own aunt, Jochebed. And that right there is interesting. Because when God gives Israel the law at Mount Sinai, that's one of the relationships that's going to be against the law. What's included in this genealogy is a relationship that is, a, is breaking the law of God once it's received at Mount Sinai. Men are not to marry the sister of their father or mother. So the fact that Moses includes this tells us that he is not sugarcoating anything. He's not making this up. If he was making up these names, if this was a fictional story, and he was trying to just make himself look good, this would not be something he would include. This is, this is disreputable. But Moses records this because it was true, not because it was right. The fact that he does not hide this helps us to see that Moses is more concerned about accuracy than he is about respectability. He's more concerned about faithfully relating what God has done than promoting his own name. Moses is writing to tell us about God, not himself or his own reputation. Now, I am lumping great-uncle Simeon and Grandpa Levi together because they are lumped together in the prophecy that their father Jacob spoke over them back in Genesis 49. And there, if you remember, these two brothers were lumped together as men of violence. When their sister, Dinah, was raped, rather than seeking to respond appropriately and pursuing justice in a righteous manner, they took judgment into their own hands. These brothers went into the city and they decimated it. They killed the men. They made the women and the children their own slaves. Their father declared that he did not want his glory attached to their company. Jacob didn't want his family, the nation of Israel, to be known for this kind of wicked anger that was neither respectable nor honoring to God. And so Jacob pronounced a curse on the anger of Simeon and Levi. And just as ungodly anger tends to divide people, so the descendants of Simeon and Levi would be divided and dispersed throughout the land of Israel. So think about the nation of Israel coming into the promised land. Okay? The nation of Israel coming into the promised land. And God had declared what portion of the promised land would belong to each tribe. So Dan, you're going to be here. Gad, you're going to be over here. Judah's going to be over here. But unlike most of the others, Simeon did not receive very much land. Rather, his portion of land was a small bit of land within the land of Judah. In fact, many think that Simeon's portion of land was really just a scattering of small pieces of land spread throughout Judah's larger portion. The truth is, the tribe of Simeon dwindled in number throughout the years of desert wandering. They were never really united. They were never really anywhere as powerful as the other tribes were. And so the lesson of Simeon, when you see that name, ought to be a lesson about God's righteous judgment against ungodly anger. Mount Hermon, beware ungodly anger. It reaps terrible consequences. When you read this name, let it remind you, be on guard against anger. 
But the lesson of Levi is a lesson of God's mercy. For you see, what God did with the tribe of Levi is remarkable. And this is the family of Moses and Aaron. God took the anger of Levi and he turned it in a righteous direction. God made the tribe of Levi the tribe of priests. The priests were responsible for protecting the honor of God among the Israelites. God established 48 Levitical cities and pasture lands throughout the whole nation of Israel so that the Levitical priests were spread throughout the whole nation. And when there was some great sin against God, who was to lead the way in bringing punishment? It was the Levites. Rather than being unrighteously angry, the Levites were to learn to be angry when the glorious God of Israel was being defamed or dishonored. So see here the goodness of God in taking the angry temperament of the Levites and turning it towards something holy and good, namely protecting the name and the glory of God. Uh, As one example, notice the very last name in the genealogy the name of Aaron's grandson. Do you see it? Phineas. Phineas. In Numbers 25, we are going to see a Moabite woman, I'm sorry, we're going to see Moabite women tempting Israelite men to sexual immorality. These Moabite women were seducing these men not only into sexual sin, but into the worship of Moabite gods. As Moses and the leaders of Israel are seeking to determine what to do about this problem, a particularly bold man named Cosby, C-O-Z-B-I, takes a pagan woman, a Midianite, into the tabernacle itself, into God's house itself, and begins to be intimate with her right there in the house of God in front of people. And in that moment, when God was being so greatly dishonored, being blatantly disrespected. It was Phinehas the Levite, charged with protecting the name and honor of God, who takes a spear and thrusts it through both this man and the woman he was lying with. How did God respond? Listen to these verses. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore I say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God, and he has made atonement for the people of Israel." Mount Hermon, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Which tells us that there is such a thing as unrighteous anger. And there is such a thing as righteous anger. And so here's my question for you. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Do you get mad when people offend you? When people offend your name, offend your glory, offend your honor? Do you get upset when people get in your way and make your life more difficult? 
Or have you laid your name, your reputation, your glory, your honor, your sense of self-entitlement in the dust at the feet of Jesus Christ? Righteous anger is when we love and trust God so much that we are no longer concerned about injustices done to us. What makes us angry and righteously angry is when we see the good, perfect, wise, glorious God being dishonored. What makes us upset is when we see that the God who provides a way for all sinners to be saved is being degraded or demeaned. We want our world to know God, to love God. It upsets us when people do things to blaspheme Him, to make Him look less glorious than He is. Anything that makes people more averse to coming to Jesus Christ in faith and love and finding salvation, anything that makes that harder ought to make our blood boil because our love for God and our love for neighbor requires that we would be angry about that. The Puritans used to say that anyone who would be angry and yet not sin must not be angry over anything but sin. Moreover, we should always first take aim at the sins of our own heart. Our own sins ought always to anger us more than the sins of other people. We need a generation of Christians that has a holy anger against the devil and against sin and against worldliness. This anger should lead us to overcome evil with good. This is an anger that should lead us to overcome hatred with love. This holy anger should lead us to to overcome worldliness with godliness. The Levites became priests in Christ. We have all been called into the priesthood. We have all now been called to expose the works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. We as Christians have all been called to be bold in defending the glory and the honor of God. He doesn't need us to defend His honor, but we have the privilege of doing this. We get to stand firm for God and declare His goodness to a world of confusion and sin. And so trusting in Christ continuing to be humble and continuing to be loving, we need to be bold. We need to have a righteous kind of anger at all that dishonors God and leads souls further away from Him. But our anger must always be motivated by love for God, love for God's people, and love for the lost. And that anger must always be checked by the even greater joy and thanksgiving and amazement that we have that Christ would save us and that we can count ourselves as believers. Picking up the pace a little bit, let me draw your attention to Cousin Cora. Does everybody see Cousin Cora? K-O-R-A-H. What comes into your mind when you hear that name, Cora? Well, I'll tell you what should come into your mind, or at least into your heart, an immediate sense of revulsion. Korah led one of the greatest rebellions against God in the entire Old Testament. Again and again and again in the pages of the Old Testament, we are reminded of Korah's rebellion. 
Even in the New Testament, we hear it again, looking back to Korah's rebellion and the great tragedy of Korah's rebellion. So what was it? Well, this man Korah gathered hundreds of followers, and they came up against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And in Numbers 16.3, we read, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, Korah led a revolt against God's appointed leaders. This was mutiny, and it grieved Moses greatly. These people were not just rebelling against Moses and against Aaron. They were rebelling against God himself. Korah and his followers were ambitious and greedy. They were lusting for influence and for power. They were not happy with the place and the calling that God had given to them. Finally, when Moses pronounced the judgment of God upon them, the very ground beneath their feet split open number 16 says the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly an amazing story the ground just swallows them uh, just providentially, I read an article online this week about people who had died in sudden sinkholes in the earth. And I didn't realize that there were so many sinkholes in Florida. Apparently, Florida is a really dangerous place where every year they have dozens of these sinkholes that just suddenly swallow up homes, swallow up people. I read an article about a man in Florida who they never found his body. He died. He was in his house. The ground caved in. The house went in. Ground closed over it. And he was gone. That's what happened in Korah's rebellion. And it was a judgment of God not to be forgotten. We ought not to rebel against the callings that God has given to us. And we ought not to seek to exalt ourselves when God has not chosen to exalt us. So Reuben reminds us about self-control and not giving in to sensual lust. Simeon reminds us not to give in to ungodly anger. Levi reminds us of the mercy of God and how we are to be concerned with the glory of God. And now Korah reminds us about ungodly ambition and how we are to seek contentment and peace within the callings that God has given us, never seeking more for selfish purposes. We're almost done, but not quite yet, because we have to note these sons of Aaron. And in particular, what comes into your heart and mind when you think of the names of Aaron's eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, do you remember how these were the worship leaders for the people of Israel and how they failed to worship God as he commanded? These two men were leading the whole nation of Israel in worship and yet they were reckless concerning the things of God. They were not being cruel or dishonest or greedy. They just did not have the kind of reverence and fear for God that they should have had as the spiritual leaders of Israel. 
They were not careful in the worship of God, and they offered up in worship to God a kind of incense that God had not prescribed. The Scriptures called it strange fire. They offered up incense to God that He had not told them to offer up. And because they did not pay attention to worship exactly as God had prescribed, they were struck down dead. And God raised up the third son of Aaron, Eleazar, to be the high priest and he was faithful and he was reverent and he was careful and his was a life of obedience just before Aaron died the office of high priest was transferred to Eleazar and into the promised land Eleazar would go with Joshua and in the promised land Eleazar would serve with faithfulness his was the privilege of once a year being allowed to enter into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Mount Hermon, the sons of Aaron remind us about how dangerous it is to play games with the things of God. We should never play games with the name of God. We should never play games with the worship of God. We should never play games with the house of God, the people of God. The sons of Aaron remind us that we must have a healthy reverence for God over all things. A healthy fear of God running deep in our souls. These sons remind us how God not only judges those who demean These sons remind us how God not only judges those who demean him, but he also blesses and honors those who are careful to follow him and to be faithful. Those who show how wonderfully weighty God is in the way that they serve Him. So who are you more like? Are you more like Nadab and Abihu, not careful concerning the commands of God? Do you treat God's word with recklessness, His name with recklessness, His worship with recklessness? Or are you like Eleazar, grateful for the privileges God has given you, and careful to follow God's every command? Those who love their God will be careful to serve Him and to honor Him obediently. And so let's close this way. What we have here is a genealogy of the priestly line of Israel. But the priests of Israel were fallen men. The priests of Israel had to atone for their own sins, not just the sins of the people. And when one high priest would rise up, he would serve for a while, and then he would die. And then another high priest would have to come and take his place. But every one of these priests was pointing to the great high priest who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one and only priest we will ever need. He is our Aaron, but he is better than Aaron. He is our priest forever. And he never needs to be replaced. He never needs to atone for his own sins, for he is sinless. He only atones for ours. He has accomplished our forgiveness. He is the one who gives us peace with God himself. Friends, there is only one way of salvation. Go to the one to whom all the Levitical priests pointed. Go to the one who is a sinless, perfect priest of God. Go to the one who is a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Trust Him and follow Him.
because he is the only way to everlasting peace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us the grace to live the kind of life so that when our descendants a hundred years from now remember our name, they will remember grace. They will remember mighty works that you have done for us. They will remember how you were glorified in us. Father, protect us. Don't let us fall into grievous sins that would hurt not only us, but our families, and ultimately your name. Father, we ask that you would make us a faithful people, that you would make us a holy people, that we can shine all the more brightly for you in this world. Father, we pray most of all that you would save anybody in this room that doesn't know you. Father, if there is someone here that doesn't have the Lord Jesus Christ as their great high priest, then Father, I ask that you would help them to sense what great danger they are in. How their sins are deserving of your wrath. Father, we ask that you would cause all of us to believe deeply in the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be precious to us as the only mediator between God and man. Father, would you cause the glory of Christ to be seen by the eyes of our hearts? Would you cause us to live each day with wonder and awe and holy, careful reverence towards the amazing Lord that we serve? And Father, we ask as we leave here in a few minutes, you would give us a wonderful afternoon thinking about these truths. And then you would bring us back tonight to think about how we can seek the welfare of the city in which we live. Thank you for your grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.